This is a story about how I became a heroin addict and then recovered from it using the sacred shamanic and theogenic plant medicine, Ibogaine. That's Adrian Aller reading the opening sentence of his book, Climbing the Holy Mountain of Recovery. Welcome to another episode of Are You Fucking Shitting Me? I'm April. And I'm Rachel. Hope you all enjoyed our Bigfoot episode. <laughs> it was fun, I think. Bigfoot. Yay, Bigfoot. We're going to have some more paranormal episodes coming up. We've got a bunch of fun stuff planned for you guys. Exactly. But this week, we're going to start a new series. Um, we're going to do a three-parter about psychedelics. This first episode is about a heroin addict who was able to get clean uh, by using the psychedelic I- ibogaine. Ibogaine? How do you ibogaine, pronounce it? Ibogaine. As far okay. as I know. Although I've heard ibogaine, but the people we've spoken with, at least for the, the upcoming episodes, say ibogaine. Yeah, so that was Adrian. He's a doctoral student at uh, the California Institute of Integral Studies. Yeah, what's that? It's a place up in, it's a school up in the Bay Area, and uh, it's really forward thinking in um, therapy and the use of alternative techniques for therapy but also it's very you've got your your psychology part of it your more spiritual parts of it it's kind of a cross pollination of all these things it's a really fascinating school I think that it would be fun to go to really Um, and I have some friends that have worked there so a couple of them recommended Adrian when they found out that we were going to do a series on psychedelics because he had been addicted to opiates for 20 years. Wow. Yeah. And now he's clean for 19 and is getting his doctorate, which is fantastic. And uh, he came along and was nice enough to talk to us about what it was like to a just go in down the spiral of addiction but also to climb that holy mountain of recovery and we're going to hear a story here with an experimental treatment using the entheogen ibogaine well let's listen to it all right i was 22 or 3 and suffering a variety of symptoms that i was able to tolerate until one day suddenly i was I, I got my first migraine headache, which was devastating. I was just walking down the sidewalk, and in, in a matter of seconds, it went from nothing to unbearable, and I just fell off by the side of the sidewalk, and some students, I was on campus. Some other students uh, dragged me over to the clinic, and that began a whole procedure. So ultimately, I was given a diagnosis of uh, severe anxiety, severe depression, Um, PTSD, and a severe migraine. Nobody said anything about therapy because that wasn't a happening thing in those days. You know, people didn't get therapy unless you were some wealthy New Yorker, you know, and then you'd get some Freudian psychoanalysis. And nobody took, uh, you know, a history uh, other than a physical history because it just wasn't in the cards in those days. So what I got was about five or maybe six prescriptions for different medications for all those different uh, individual symptoms. And included amongst them were some Percodan for the pain for the migraine headache. So I took it like I was supposed to for about a year. Um, And all these other meds too. And all the other meds more or less just homogenized my life into a sort of a dull gray blur. And then one day I wound up taking Percodan when I did not have a migraine headache. Uh, I just had an ordinary headache, 
and had run out of aspirin or something. So I thought, okay, I'll just just this once. I'll I'll take these Percodans and uh, and then go get some aspirin when I feel better. Uh, but because it wasn't a migraine, uh, the you know there was the effect of the Percodan was more than was required to to deal with an ordinary headache. And I began to notice how much better I felt in all kinds of ways. And uh, eventually, to, to cut to the chase, I realized that taking this one medication dealt with my anxiety, my depression, the PTSD, and the headaches better than everything else uh, put together. So I just started self-medicating with the Percodans for all of those things, and the quality of my life got better. However, uh, I was using it every day for the rest of my life, practically speaking, and of course, inevitably, I got addicted. I officially became a junkie because uh, getting enough mm, prescription opiates was becoming difficult, and I had to go to the street and supplement with heroin, which actually I ultimately came to prefer. Basically, you know, to get heroin, certainly, you have to, you know, break the law, uh, expose yourself to all kinds of dangers, getting ripped off, beaten up, mugged, shot, arrested, or killed. Adrian became a full-fledged heroin addict in 1975. In his book, Climbing the Holy Mountain of Recovery, he draws a comparison between his addiction to Dante's Inferno. I asked him to describe what he meant by that. One reason I went there is, is because probably because of the grad school I go to. California Institute of Integral Studies were willing to uh, engage with things that you won't find in mainstream schools, which includes myth and, you know, the reality of it. And I'm just, I'm also a literary person. I've just, I've been a reader since I was like a little kid. I actually read Dante's Inferno, I think in early recovery. It was so obviously appropriate for my, my life uh, story. The first two books, okay, for anyone who doesn't know, Dante's Inferno is a story about Dante's descent into hell. While alive, he goes down into hell and then passes through the center of the earth where gravity changes and then has to climb up the other side. And when he emerges on the surface of the earth, he's uh, a short distance from the mountain of purgatory. In in hell, uh, sinful souls uh, suffer the... the you know, the, the trials that they uh, incurred by being sinful. And then having paid those dues, then they have to purge and cleanse themselves spiritually by climbing the mountain of purgatory, which has the same number of, of rings around it as the rings of hell. To me, it's just immediately, it, certainly my experience as an addict was hellish, and the climb up the mountain of purgatory or recovery was a, a perfect analogy for uh, my experience uh, of addiction and recovery. When I was in recovery and in the 12-step uh, program, I mean, 12, you know, in the rooms of recovery, uh, I found that there were people in there for um, ambient addiction. And, you know, if you use it properly, I suppose it works fine, but uh, it's possible to become addicted to that too. So anything, you know, that they give you that makes you feel better when you feel badly in some way, uh, if you get out of control on it, it can, it can lead to problems, uh, but that shouldn't be taken as necessarily a condemnation of the medication. Uh, it's, a, it's a much larger 
more complex situation there that involves the person, the society, uh, the community that they're in. That's the major problem of allopathy, uh, biomedical science, that they, it more often than not, is, is treating symptoms uh, without really knowing what the cause is or even assuming that it's important. So addiction is actually um, on an individual plane. It's a, a psycho-emotional and spiritual problem. Uh, on the physiological plane, there's all kinds of damage that commonly takes place in abusive childhood situations that leads you to being actually physiologically less well-equipped to deal with life. It all goes together into a, a multi-layered, multi-dimensional problem. And, and the whole problem with the West is that they've just had this very simple one, you know, one-size-fits-all uh, vision of what addiction is. Over the course of 17 years, I entered into 14 different treatment programs that were generally a month long. And so, I, of course, I got clean physiologically from my addiction to opiates every time. But they did very little to attend to all the other stuff I was talking about that that's actually the core of addiction. Uh, so consequently, when I got out, all they'd succeeded in doing is removing my blanket of comfortable numb, and there was all my pain and fear and ag you know, anxiety and everything else just waiting for me, the stuff that I started taking opiates for in the first place to deal with. So there were 14 specific programs. I also engaged in about 900 hours of psychotherapy over that same period of time. Uh, which only succeeded in making me more acutely aware of how screwed up I was, so I felt even worse about myself and used even more. Wow. Uh, so you were couldn't. going for it. I, I mean, was. You were trying. And, and yeah. you should know something else, too. I'm very intelligent um, and uh, highly educated and, and well-read and all that junk, so I kept thinking, I can think my way out of this. This is just a problem. So I was in a very mental kind of place. And I, you know, I thought, I'm smarter than the average bear. I should be able to figure my way out of this. But you can't figure your way out of addiction. During my conversation with Adrian, it became clear that methadone was not doing the job. As he puts it, the biggest difference between it and heroin is that the government becomes your pusher. After so many concerted efforts to kick, only to go back to using, where could he turn? Adrian has an intense and amazing story about the discovery of experimental treatment and what it took to become part of that study. There used to be a magazine, I don't know if it's still in publication, called Omni. It was kind of a, a you know, avant-garde science um, kind of magazine, but uh, open to, you know, other non-traditional uh, subjects. And so I was looking at this magazine in sometime in the mid-80s, and they had a little article. A little, it was just a, actually a one-column article about Dr. Mash and her work with Ibogaine. And uh, so I was an addict at the time, and I read it and said, oh, that sounds interesting. Uh, but I wasn't ready, and I forgot about it, and that was that. A few years later, maybe three or four years later, I came across exactly the same article reprinted in a different publication. I said, oh yeah, this stuff, this is very interesting, I should check it out. But I wasn't ready. 
so you know, some more years passed. I think I saw it a third time. So finally, uh, I'm in terminal stage. I'm dying. And I was in uh, Northampton, Mass. And uh, this cool guy who was a recovering dude himself, I think he had eight years clean, which was godlike to me at the time, had managed to negotiate uh, funds from the city uh, to run some social service program. And it was primarily about STDs and education and referrals, uh, mostly for women and stuff like that. But he managed to work in a needle exchange program uh, you know, as a writer, if you will. So a couple times a week, there was a needle exchange program in Northampton, which was pretty funny because there's no dope in Northampton. <laughs> well, I mean, people have, uh, you know, pharmaceuticals and stuff, but I had to, you know, I, had, I belonged to a small crowd of uh, relatively educated white people who lived in the Amherst, Northampton educational area. And we all had to go, you know, take transportation over the mountains south down into uh, the big city to, to go score and bring it back. And so, and there was no, uh, down, down in the city where all the dope was, where we went to buy it, there were no needle exchange programs. But here in Northampton, where there were really no junkies, there was a needle exchange program. So anyway, I'm going to this place, and he would put out flyers for various information uh, of different things for you to look at while you were standing in line waiting for your turn. And one time I went and I picked up a flyer, and there it was, the same freaking article reprinted for the umpteenth time on this flyer. And now I was ready because I had reached the terminal stage, which means no hope. You're just completely convinced you're going to die as an addict and that you can't possibly escape from it. So I went over to uh, this guy and I said, hey, have you read this? What do you know about this? And he looks at it. Oh, yeah, that. Well, it turns out he knew exactly what I did, which is that article. That was practically the only reference to Ibogaine that you could see anywhere in any kind of popular publication uh, up to that point. Now, of course, there were some things going on, but you had to be you probably had to be in New York City, or, or you know, it was very limited. So anyway, he knew about that article, so neither of us knew anything more about it or how to get it. But he agreed that it was interesting. So I had engaged with this guy doing some volunteer work in his office, and he took me with him a few times to, to present at high schools. And then he, after he'd do an introductory speech, he'd drag me forward to, to go into my kids, don't try this at home, um, a routine about how uh, addiction is dangerous and could uh, lead to death and things like that. Uh, so anyway, I was engaged with him, and, and we were in contact. So a couple of weeks after I saw the article and I asked him about it, he called me up at home, which is pretty unusual, and said, hey, I was online doing research for my, you know, for my organization. I came across this big paper about Ibogaine. It's like 60 pages long. I don't have the time to read it. Would you read it for me and then tell me what it says? So I said, sure. So he printed the whole thing out, and I went and fetched it and took it home and read it. And this was uh, a paper by Howard Lotsoff, who is, who well, was, he's passed on now, he was the uh, young American heroin addict who had uh, stumbled onto Ibogaine, took it once, and discovered that his, his heroin habit disappeared overnight. He's like the founder, if you will, of the Western Ibogaine scene. So I, reading the article and thinking, 
how can I find out how to get this stuff? Because the more I read about it, the more I was convinced that this was my last and only chance to, to survive. Well, of course, they couldn't say anything like, so here's, here's where you go to get some or anything like that because naturally it's illegal in our freaking country. At that time, there were probably only maybe four places, I'm going to say four or five places at the most, in all of the West, the Western world, to, uh, that were using Ibogaine for experimental uh, opiate addiction treatment. One was in Switzerland, one was in Netherlands, uh, I can't remember the others. So um, I, you know, I couldn't go there. So I'm thinking, how can I get this? So in the, in the article, there were the names of three people. One was Howard Lotsoff, of course, and I didn't know how to get in touch with him. And besides, he was an addict, and so I know how screwed up addicts are. So I was, you know, I appreciated what he was doing, but it was a little bit uh, reserving judgment. And there was the name of some bigwig in the FDA, and I didn't want to have anything to do with those stuffed shirts. And there was the name of this researcher, Dr. Mash. I said, there's that lady from the article. So... Uh, with my background being primarily scholarly academic, I said, I don't know how to get in touch with Howard Lotsoff, and I don't care to get in touch with this other jerk, but by golly, I know how to find a professor. So I called the University of Miami, where she is, and uh, she was in the School of Medicine. So I called up, and I you know, information, and they gave me the number for her department. I called her department, and the secretary, who would normally have answered the phone, was on lunch. And uh, one of the various researchers who would have answered the phone, they were all in a meeting. Dr. Mash picked up the phone herself. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's kind of an emotional thing for me. I said, hey, are you, you know, this person doing this? And she said, yes, I am. And I said, I'm an addict. Is there any chance I can, I can get something or you know, I can be helped? And she said, yes, I'm doing this study. So the bottom line is the way I got Ibogaine the first time was to be a research subject in her study. Now, Dr. Mash had been doing work on this for many years and uh, fighting tooth and nail with the FDA for the right to do human clinical trials. And finally, incredibly, she got the green light to do human clinical trials at her school, University of Miami School of Medicine. That was a huge success. So she could actually do human clinical trials for Ibogaine right here in the U.S. So she applied for three different grants to fund the trials and didn't get sent one for any of these grants. Now wow. dig it. Dr. Mash had already been in the saddle as a, an intensive researcher on a variety of things. She was already administering millions of dollars of research grant money and things like that. She runs one of the three biggest brain banks in the world. She works with neurodegenerative uh, diseases, and uh, you know she, she's got credentials up the bazooty. Had been well established for a long time, and already had lots of of research money. So it's not like she was some unknown little goofball making some outrageous claim. And she'd been given the green light by the FDA, and she still didn't get a freaking cent from any one of those three. Whereas otherwise, she got every every grant she ever wrote for. You can kind of smell you know, sort of a political connection uh, in the influence of big pharma behind this whole thing. So she didn't have any money to do the trial. But she was so engaged with the subject by now that I think at the time she was dating 
some cat who was like a big wig in the Democratic uh, Party political organization in Florida. So she got him to take her to some fancy schmancy gathering, dinner party, whatever, where there were going to be a bunch of people with money. And she took the opportunity to propose, hey, I'm trying to do this thing. So she formed a little corporation and she got some people to donate money so that she could do this work. But she couldn't do it in the U.S. because the, you know, the, the, the path to do it from the FDA had expired or whatever. And besides, she could see that, you know, no matter how legitimate it was, there was just too much resistance here. So she proceeded to fly all over the Caribbean looking for a country that would let her do these trials. And she finally uh, hit success in the country of St. Kitts and Nevis. St. Kitts and Nevis are two islands, St. Kitts and Nevis, um, that who used to be British possessions in the outer Antilles, the, the Windward Islands, you know what I mean, the outer ring of islands that, that define the Caribbean. So what she did is found a little uh, tourist resort that she could totally take over periodically. When the tourists uh, who were there left, then they wouldn't bring any other tourists until the place was empty. And Dr. Mash would fly her staff and all the equipment and the clients out to St. Kitts and be there for about two weeks, dosing people and, and following up and seeing how they're doing, things like that, and then fly back. And she did that mm, three or four times a year, every year for six years. So Dr. Mash clearly kicks ass. I mean, they should make a superhero movie about her. But what exactly is Ibogaine and how does it work? You describe ibogaine as a sacred ethnogenic plant medicine. Could you explain mm. what you mean by that? Yes. Uh, entheogenic is uh, an adjective that can be used for any, uh, let's say, mind-altering substances, psychotropic substances. There are a host of words about this, and there have been arguments about it. But anyway, psychedelic is a legitimate word. Uh, it, it does apply. It refers to several uh, characteristics of the experience when you take those substances, but it's the upward and outward experience. It's mind expanding and uh, consciousness enhancing, and it takes you to the light and to you know higher levels of beings and things like that. Entheogen means generating a sense of the divine within. And that, too, is typically a component of the experience with any of these substances. Given the substance and the person and the circumstance and under which they take it, probably the psychedelic or the entheogenic aspect is going to be more emphasized, depending on what you're looking for. If you're looking for spiritual awakening and so forth, the entheogenic aspect is going to be uh, at least as important, if not more so, than the psychedelic aspect. The psychedelic aspect is what the Silicon Valley folks uh, use microdosing of acid for, mainly to enhance their mm, creativity and intuitive, uh, inspirational uh, direction and things like that. Nobody knows exactly what Ibogaine does. It's one of the newer, the more recently discovered uh, psychedelic substances to be investigated. As I said, most of the early investigation was historical and anthropological. 
and furthermore, it's not exactly like any other psychedelic. There are basically two classes of psychedelics, broadly speaking. For instance, mescaline and San Pedro are phenylalanines. Most of the other psychedelics that we know of, uh, such as LSD and psilocybin and like that, those are tryptamines. DMT, ayahuasca, all of those are tryptamines. But ibogaine is not exactly either of those. It has an unusual molecule. Most most molecules are, are kind of like flat and two-dimensional, but this one has a, a 90 degree turn to the side, so it, it's more three-dimensional. And you know, studies have been going on for some time, of course, about where it goes in the body. That's primarily what Dr. Mash was doing. And it's been discovered that it doesn't just go to receptor sites in the brain, it goes into receptor sites in different kinds of tissues throughout your whole body. So it, it acts throughout your body and all kinds of different systems doing something everywhere. And remember I mentioned earlier that when you want to treat addiction, you've got to treat all aspects of it because any part you miss, that's the part that's going to pull you down again. So Ibogaine attends to everything. Most of the uh, well-known naturally occurring psychedelic plants are in the Americas. Uh, in Asia, there's Amanita Mascara and Syrian Rue, uh, which has harmaline in it. But that's pretty much it. There's not a lot. And in Africa, there's only one, as far as I know, Ibogaine. So that's where it comes from. That's why it was unknown in the West, because it comes from Africa. So it's a shamanic, a sacred shamanic medicine. And the shamanic practice from that part of the world is called Bwiti. Uh, so most of the early, you know, once it started becoming popular in the West, most of the early research that came out was of a largely historical and uh, anthropological or ethnographic nature, all about Bwiti and where it comes from and the plant and all that kind of stuff, all of which is, you know, interesting and important to know, to be well informed about the whole scene, but it doesn't have much to do with what we use it for because it became known in the West after that cat I mentioned to you, Howard Lotsoff, scored some one time in New York. Um, it was sold to him as, as like a party drug or party psychedelic or something. <laughs> Spoiler alert, it is not a party psychedelic. You take it and lay there like a sack of cement for about 12 hours without moving and you don't want to be bothered by anybody. This is not a social party drug. So he was, he was an addict. He had a habit going. Uh, he'd scored for the day. He was okay for his, his dope needs. And he, he got this stuff and thought, okay, I'll uh, party tonight or something. So he took it and he, you know, he had some experience. Uh, then the next day, once he finally got up, he went out to uh, a cafe or something and, you know, he had a newspaper. He had a cup of coffee and a bun or something and he's sitting there waking up and reading the newspaper and stuff. And all of a sudden it occurs to him, wow, I've been up for like an hour and a half and I haven't even thought about dope. And when he checked himself out, he realized that's because he had no need. But yesterday, he was strung out. That is a miracle. Now, what happened when I took it? Well, it, uh, of course, it cleansed me you know, of dope and all kinds of toxins. A lot of really horrible stuff came out of me. But I'd gotten detox from, from opiate in all of those 14 treatment centers that I went to. But Evogaine did so much more. And first off, it detoxed me much more efficiently and much faster. Over and above that, 
it, it takes you back. It gives you the opportunity to revisit traumatic memories that um, are at the root of your addiction without being re-traumatized. Uh, we have two nervous systems, the central nervous system, mm -hmm. which is the brain and the spinal cord, we all know that, and the autonomic nervous system, which is all your old nerves that take care of bodily functions without you having to be involved, you know, heartbeat, things like that. And the autonomic nervous system has two subdivisions, the sympathetic and the parasympathetic. The sympathetic, uh, among other things, is the one that generates the fight or flight symptom. And the parasympathetic system is the one that calms you right down, all right, puts all that other stuff on hold. So it turns out that Ibogaine stimulates the parasympathetic system and suppresses the sympathetic system so that when you view or engage in some, some manner of consciousness uh, traumatic episodes that are at the root of your addiction, you don't get re-traumatized. It's like you can watch, watch something on the television with the sound turned off. So that you're you're there, but you're not there. So you can witness, and but in a dispassionate fashion, so that you have a chance to learn and understand. Oh, it wasn't my fault. I wasn't a bad person. I didn't invite getting raped, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. It's been discovered that ibogaine causes the I think the hypothalamus to generate nerve growth factor, so that nerve cells that had died, connections that had been lost due to your prolonged uh, Addiction can be renewed, uh, refreshed. You, you, can, you can really start all over again. So uh, when I first did Evogaine, I was in such I was in very near death. I was within two weeks of dying from uh, advanced morphine toxicity. 22 years of shooting dope every day, uh, and you just you know, you're, uh, all kinds of morphine toxins build up in your body faster than they can be gotten rid of, and so it's like. It's like heavy metal uh, poisoning. It just builds up slowly and you slowly get sicker and sicker and weaker and weaker until you go. So I was within two weeks of going when I took the Ibogaine. So it had a tremendous job in front of it. And I think that the majority of its energy had to go to healing my body just so I'd stay alive. But I also had experiences that, that reconnected me with my spirituality and gave me hope and uh, the opportunity to begin the work of recovery. It is my experience as well as the experience of almost every Ibogonaut I know that um, one dose of Ibogaine totally interrupted the entire addictive cycle. I, I went in to be dosed, you know, a, a dying addict, toxic as hell, and 18 hours later I was uh, led back to my cabana and my addiction was, was gone. It was gone. I'm sorry. Yeah, please don't apologize. It's it's gorgeous. That I mean, it inter it interrupted and saved your life. It's gorgeous. It should be yeah. celebrated. And I hope that someday the U.S. will make it legal. <laughs> I feel the need to say this because it was a big Great. deal with Dr. Mash. Uh, emphasizing that it's not a magic pill. So, I mean, you can, because you, if, you, if you have an experience like mine where you go from feeling just dreadful to feeling suddenly wonderful and your life is like totally rejuvenated, it's very easy, especially if you're an American, 
bombarded by the, the propaganda of big pharma that I've taken this pill and see, by golly, I feel great. So I'm fixed. And then you go back out to life thinking that's it. You don't have to do anything else. I went and began my serious recovery work thereafter. The simple fact is I could not have done it without the evil game. The evil game gave me the freedom to do it, the tools to do it, the motivation to do it, and the energy to do it. And then I went out and started my, my recovery work. That's why its best description is as an addiction interrupter. What you do with that pause, that space that's given to you, is up to you. Wow, that's an amazing story. It's powerful, right? Really powerful. Here he was, you know, on death's door, and then he gets this opportunity to go and be part of this project, and it saved his life. And also that he found out about this information in Omni magazine, which I don't know if you remember Omni when you were a kid, but that was a magazine that we got also, and it was this great mix, just like he said, of uh, paranormal and, and science. Omni sounds like a great magazine. Yeah, it was kind of like Smithsonian, I guess, in a way. Cool. Yeah, I would have missed that. But I agree. It is amazing that here's this same article reoccurring over years and years. And he gets to the point where he just, he's ready and he needs to stop or he's going to die. And and he goes to see the doctor from that article. Dr. Mash. Dr. Mash. I'd like to know what happened to Dr. Mash. Do we know? We don't know. Maybe we should look into that and give a little update next, next week. week. I find it interesting that it's so unknown. I think until we started doing this research, you had heard about it, but I had never heard about this treatment. Actually, I hadn't. That's the funny thing is I was talking to him as well, and I had never heard about it. He pointed that out, too. He's so entrenched in the subject that he thinks that more people know about it as well. But it was shocking to me. I had no idea that this was even an option. Yeah, I think most people probably don't know about it. I think we've heard about using psychedelics, maybe LSD and MDMA to help treat traumas and PTSD. And I knew LSD was used to help ease uh, DTs for alcoholism before it became a Schedule One drug. Yeah, I, but Ibogaine I had never heard of. You know, I was telling our friend Rico, though, about this, and he said that it's mentioned in one of Hunter S. Thompson's books. So it's been around for a while. The first person who experimented with it, I think um, Adrian talks about a little bit, was a guy, and it was in the 1960s when he experimented with that for the first time. So I guess it would make sense maybe that it shows up in that book. Yeah, he was deciding that someone was exhibiting all the symptoms of evil gain, and and someone said, is he on it? No, I'm just saying he's exhibiting the symptoms of someone on evil gain. That's hilarious. Uh, When I was doing some research to see if there are any treatment centers around uh, who are working with Ibogaine, because I wanted to find out what happened since the 90s and the, you know, the experimental uh, research project that he was with. Uh, I did find that there are a ton of treatment centers in Mexico and Canada. In fact, a couple in Baja. But of course, there's nothing in the US because it's still illegal here. Yeah. And yet we have this huge addiction to opiates it's yeah here's here's the treatment 
here's an option. Yeah. Is it right for everybody? Probably not, but no treatment's right for everyone. I, I just, we're so ass backwards here sometimes. Yes, I agree with that. We <laughs> absolutely are on so many topics, sadly. I think it's pretty important that we also talk about the fact that addiction is not racist, it's not classist, and just like mental illness and depression, it can strike you no matter who you are, and your intelligence level clearly does not matter. You can't talk yourself out of these things. I think it's also hard for people to reach out for help. Absolutely. So that's the other thing. And also, I, I think not only is addiction, you know, not a racial thing, not a class thing, not an intelligence thing, I think treatment should also not be a racial thing, a classist thing. And yeah. we should all have the same opportunities to all the different kinds of treatments available. Yeah, yeah. We are Americans, we want the simple fix. And at least... I know that I've been trained to. <laughs> I'm like, oh yeah, I can just take this and it'll make me happy. Or uh, if I get the right job or meet the right person, that solves all my problems. But that old phrase, wherever you go, there you are. Right. It's a lot of work. It's a lot of work, but this gave some breathing room where he could do that work. Um, well, next week, we're going to talk to someone from the Drug Policy Alliance about the use of psychedelics early in the 20th century, how they got developed, and then how the war on drugs started. We'll find out for sure next week. Yeah, exactly. The week after that, we'll be talking to uh, another person about psychedelics being used as ideogens. So kind of the future of psychedelics outside of the medical uses. What other applications do they potentially offer us? What can we do with them? That sounds great. All right. Well, thank you guys for joining us on Adrian's journey. Thank you, Adrian, for sharing. Yeah, this has been really interesting to do research on, and I'm really looking forward to posting these episodes and having people hear them. So thanks, everyone, for listening to this episode and all episodes. Yeah, and you guys, we love the feedback. So if you have any, please give it to us. And thank you for those of you who have given us reviews on iTunes. And it really helps us and it really keeps us going. So we really appreciate it. And if you have any ideas for shows, please uh, feel free to email us or post those to our Facebook page also. Uh, we love you all. Thanks for coming by. See you next time. This is April. And this is Rachel. Bye. Bye.